Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hi there. I'm Randa Fattah from ThruLine. If you're listening to this podcast, you know that KQED produces exceptional storytelling that keeps you informed, inspired, and entertained. Their podcasts cover issues from your neighborhood to the entire country and everything in between. Support this work today. You can help us continue to bring quality podcasts to your ears. Just head to donate.kqed.org podcast. That's donate.kqed.org podcast. From KQED. It's been a year since one of the biggest political scandals in its history rocked the Los Angeles City Council. What a story this is. It's a bombshell. It's stunning. Martinez was heard making racist and vile comments against blacks, indigenous Mexicans. Nuri Martinez called a fellow councilman's black child, quote, a little monkey. Four Latino political leaders were caught on tape making racist comments during a meeting to discuss redrawing council district maps. Say that this has rocked the city hall here in L.A. from its foundation probably is an understatement. Nuri Martinez, is she now Council President Nuri Martinez would end up resigning because of the scandal. And then she kind of disappeared for a while until recently when she agreed to an exclusive interview with LAS Studios to talk about the tapes. I'm Sasha Coca, and today on the California Report magazine, we're talking with Antonia Cerejido. She's the host of LAS Imperfect Paradise podcast. They've released a series of episodes about the leaked tapes, about why they were so hurtful, and what Nuri Martinez says about the incident now. Hey there, Antonia. Hi, Sasha. Thank you for having me. So, Antonia, you've been basically living and breathing this scandal for months, making this podcast. But for people who might just be a little fuzzy on the details, maybe people who don't live in Los Angeles, can you just give us a summary, walk us through where these tapes were made and what was on them? Around a year ago, a tape featuring four very prominent Latino leaders here in Los Angeles was leaked to the public The four people included three city council members, including the president of the LA City Council at the time, Nuri Martinez, and a labor leader here in the city. You hear the four of them talking very candidly and griping about what it's like to be a Latino politician in the city. One thing they complain about is like that they can't have like fancy events. They think there's like a double standard between them and white folks on the on the city council. And then it gets sort of like progressively more offensive. There's tape of them talking about how they're resentful of black political power in the city and think that the black community or black politicians have a louder voice in the city than actually their power reflects or that the black community deserves. The parts of the tape that got the most attention that were the most offensive were direct racist and prejudice statements. The one part that got the most attention was when former city council president Nuri Martinez When referring to the black son of one of her colleagues on the council, she says that he, quote, parece changuito, that he seemed like a little monkey. Nothing you can do to control him, parece changuito. And I'm just like, oh, my God, I'm over here trying to parent this kid. I'm like, you can't do that. I said no. So this happened a year ago. Why did you want to dig into this controversy again? And why did you want to focus specifically on Nuri Martinez? We knew that this was like a really big 
story that had lots of different layers that would help sort of understand Los Angeles in many different ways. So we were interested in the story in general. And then we were we gravitated towards Noreen Martinez's story because she was like one person who was the person who said the most offensive things and who was sort of at the center of it all. For us, it was sort of a surprise that Nuri agreed to be interviewed. We really had this opportunity to hold her accountable and to ask her specifically about what she said. And I think we got a lot of flack at the time from people saying, like, oh, you're trying to rehab her image or platform her. That was never the, our intention. At no point did our reporting stem from the idea that what she said was not actually bad or anti-Black. Um, and it was more about just understanding Nuri Martinez how her story fits into the greater context of Los Angeles politics and Latino politics in the whole country and getting the opportunity to, like, really ask her and hold her accountable for the the really terrible things that she said. In this podcast, you talked to a lot of people who were directly discussed on the tapes, too, including Mike Bonin, the city council member whose son was the subject of some of Nuri's most controversial and racist comments. He gave a really powerful speech at City Hall just a couple days after the tapes came out. My husband and I are both uh, raw and angry and heartbroken and sick for our family and for Los Angeles. I am reeling from the revelations of what these people said. I can never really know or comprehend or feel the weight of the daily relentless racism, anti-black racism that my son is going to face. But man, I know the fire that you feel when someone tries to destroy black boy joy. Man, uh, it's a rage. And the comments weren't just focused on the black community. There were comments about Oaxacans and indigenous Mexicans in these tapes, too, right? Nuri's comments about the Oaxacan community spurred a lot of anger. But also, I think for a lot of indigenous folks here in the city, they were kind of like, yeah, we know. Like, racism within the Latino community is nothing new to us. And that was definitely true of Odilia Romero, who is the head of an indigenous rights nonprofit here in the city called Cielo. That was definitely true of her own reaction to the tapes. You're the first woman to be the president of city council. You've had this discourse of, you know, how Latinos get discriminated how hard it is to be a Latina or a person of color. But you repeat exactly the same thing with us who are darker, but also people of color. You have a lot of white passing Latina privilege. We don't. You also talk to people who've really been looking at the issue of colorism and anti-Blackness in the Latino community pretty closely, like Tanya Hernandez, who's a legal professor at Rutgers. Certainly people who are feeling harmed want an immediate kind of response. And so having people resign and be dismissed and removed, that's a very immediate and visual way of saying we've addressed the source of the problem. But here's what I find so unsatisfactory about that is that it treats this as if it were only about Nuri Martinez and the others, that it's only about them as individuals. And now that we've taken care of the bad apples in the group, there is no more need for discussion. What really is needed here is a much more holistic way of understanding that this is deeply entrenched within our communities. Sounds like part of the reason it was so shocking to people is that Nuri Martinez has really 
been a champion for working class people and for immigrants. Let's listen to a clip from episode two where Nuri explains just how she got interested in politics. When Nuri was growing up, her family lived across the street from a factory run by Price Fister that made products like showerheads and faucets. And the jobs there were good jobs. It paid about 15 bucks an hour. It had health insurance, which we had never had growing up. It had a pension, and it was a union job. And for all those four reasons, my mom insisted that she needed to get a job there. So my mom, after her seamstress job every day, she would literally walk across the street to Price Fister and go to the HR department and would put an application in for every single day. This went on for three years. Eventually, her mom got a job working the graveyard shift on the assembly line, fitting parts together. Nuri says it changed their entire life, but it wouldn't last. When I was in high school, I remember walking into my mom and dad's bedroom and my mom was sitting at the edge of her bed crying. She's just crying and sobbing and sobbing. I thought somebody had died. I thought something had happened to my dad. I'm like, what happened, mom? And she couldn't even get the words out of her mouth. And basically, the company had said that they were going to shut down and they were going to move to Mexicali, to Mexico. And I'm like, well, why? And my mom was like, well, because they signed NAFTA. NAFTA, or the North American Free Trade Agreement, was a landmark trade deal between Mexico, the U.S., and Canada. One critique of the deal was that it would make it easier for U.S. companies to move their manufacturing plants to Mexico, where labor was cheaper, and would result in the loss of thousands of U.S. jobs. And she goes, I need to know who the mayor is, and I need to know who the governor is, because we need to tell them 2,000 or 2,500 people work here. And that's when I began to ask my high school teachers, my government teacher in particular, like, how do we get a hold of these people? And I started to notice two things. The majority of the people in office didn't look like me, and there was very few women. Why do you think Nuri's backstory is so important to how this scandal played out? I had a lot of conversations after the podcast came out and even during the reporting where Nuri in many ways is like very much like a classic L.A. kind of person. And her experience is so um, resonates with so many other people who live in the city. And I think that also explains a big reason of why she became so powerful within the city is that a lot of people related to her story and to her background. Um, And so it felt very important to sort of illustrate where she came from and how she came to the political beliefs that she had. As a city council member, Nuri focused on what she calls quality of life issues. Things like cleaning up pollution, building parks, fixing sidewalks, and fighting sex trafficking on a notorious street in her district. Everybody wants what the nice neighborhoods have, which is nice, safe neighborhoods to live in and good schools for your kids to go to. Everyone wants the same thing. Along the way, she started to get a reputation for a certain style of communication. Here's Stuart Waldman again. She was very blunt and held people's feet to their fire. And I mean, she's very brass. You can hear what Stuart's talking about when you listen to Nuri addressing the council about dockless scooters in the summer of 2018, a year after they were first introduced to L.A. Thank you, Mr. Chair. So I don't have any dockless bicycles or scooters or any of that fancy stuff you guys got in your districts. Um, We're just simply trying to cross the street without getting killed, just to put it all in perspective. Um, She spoke like she was raised in Pacoima. This is veteran Democratic strategist Mike Trujillo, who grew up in Nuri's part of the valley. And anyone that was raised in Pacoima, they all sound like they're raised in Pacoima. 
a little bit valley, a little bit street. And, you know, depending on whether English or Spanish was your first language at home, you would come out with an accent. And honestly, I think she's proud of that. And she should be. I think the proof is in the pudding. She got elected. As a council member, it sounds like Nuri had good relationships with a lot of the people who ultimately she ended up hurting the most with these comments, right? Yeah, she at first was very close with former council member Mike Bonin and another council member that we hear from in this series, Marquise Harris-Dawson. For me, one of the parts of the story that I think from just like a narrative place was really interesting is that there's like almost this like kind of like succession moment where you realize that uh, Nuri started to make a lot of enemies on the council when um, she became interested in running for city council president. And I think it's a really good sort of like look behind the curtain in terms of like how the sausage is made and sort of like the political machinations that happen at the city level. And then the pandemic happened and the council started facing a lot of really tough issues. It sounds like Nuri as the council president was under a lot of pressure at that point. When the pandemic began, there were a lot of really difficult issues that the city council was dealing with, including the decision of whether or not to cancel rent, issues dealing with the homelessness crisis that we have here in L.A. And people in the city were extremely angry at Nuri, and she started to be frightened because they were showing up at her house to protest. June of 2021, two men got onto my property, spray-painted my driveway, and then poured some acid fluid on top of my personal car oh my God. that's like 20 feet away from my daughter's bedroom. Can you imagine if that thing would have blown up? But I heard very little outcry when that happened to me. It's like it almost felt that the two and a half years of being council president and all these protests and all this criticism just became normal. I just needed to take it. Yeah, it really sounds like she was going through a lot. And, you know, in this section, you kind of get at one of the things that came up on these tapes, which is that Latino leaders, in a way, feel like they've been treated differently than other council members, other people in local government. Yeah, I think she felt like there was more outrage geared towards her than there would have been to a white politician. And like whether or not she was getting different treatment because of her racial background or because of the fact that she was a woman. One thing that's definitely true is that you can hear how angry she is in the tapes um, that were released. Nobody cared. Nobody cared that I had people protesting me at six in the morning. Nobody cared that people were protesting me at seven o'clock in the evening. Nobody cared that two guys walked onto my property and poured some acid fluid on my personal vehicle. It didn't matter. Antonia, I know one of the goals of this series was to really hold Nuri Martinez accountable for the things that she said on those tapes. Do you feel like she took responsibility for what she said? I actually did not know what Nuri was going to say about the her language from the tapes. Um, and so what you hear in the in the podcast is like also me hearing her reflect on on what she said for the first time. And I didn't know if within that year she had read books, spoken to people in the Black or Indigenous community about the power of her words. And ultimately, it was very clear that she hadn't done that and that like a whole year has passed. And really, she just felt misunderstood and felt frustrated, but did not actually think about why it is that the words specifically that she used were so painful to so many people. 
Um, And she dodged a lot of my questions. And I felt like it was very hard to have a sort of deeper conversation about what she said. Let's talk about sort of like the things that got the most attention, the comments about Councilmember Mike Bonin and his son. What did you mean when you called his son, when you said about his son, parece changuito? The way I grew up with that word, parece changuito, has nothing to do with the skin color of anyone's ethnicity. It's got to do more with the behavior. You're sort of just playing around, you're horsing around. Eres travieso. You're just, you can't stay put. You know, I'm going to have to live with that comment for the rest of my life. I heard Jacob and that was not my intent. Had you used that particular word to describe children before? Yes, in my family, yes. In fact, my mother said that to me. But it says, changuita, si, mira como andas. You know, know, get inside the house. It was common when I was growing up. And my mom actually pointed that out when the tapes broke. And she goes, but we use that word at home. But yes, mom, but my mistake was that I was referencing an African-American baby. And I shouldn't have done that. Why do you think it's different to say it about a black kid versus a kid of another race? I did not mean it in a derogatory way, and it wasn't meant to describe him as a black child. That was not the intent of the word. But do you understand why is it that that word specifically is offensive when talked about a black kid versus another kid? Oh, 100%. No, just the why. The word was not meant to be derogatory, and I was not describing him in that way because he's a black child. I was simply referring to his behavior, and that was it. Would you have used that word in English? Never. Never have I ever used those words in English. It is absolutely true that the racial dynamics in Latin America are different than they are in the U.S. But this idea that changuito in reference to a black child is somehow not racist in Spanish is not accurate. Mono, monito, monkey, little monkey. These are deeply racialized terms that are not at all innocuous. This is Tania Hernandez, a law professor who has written a book about anti-Blackness in the Latino community. When we want to talk about the ugliness of Blackness, the inferiority of Blackness, we use animalistic comparisons. Or we refer to the person as being like an animal. And so this idea of thinking of African ancestry as less than human and part of the animal kingdom that excludes humanity is a deep part of our racialized sort of understandings. Much like here in the U.S., Latin America has a long and painful history with colonization and slavery. There were 15 times as many enslaved Africans taken to Spanish and Portuguese colonies as there were taken to the U.S., Mexico, where Nuri's family has their roots, has its own particular relationship to slavery. Spanish colonizers brought hundreds of thousands of enslaved Africans to Mexico beginning in the 1500s. The country abolished slavery almost 30 years before the United States. When we think about Mexico, Mexico evolves not to get rid of their black people, they are there, (laughs) but to use rhetorics of mestizaje, racial mixture, to distract from and present the nation state as long having moved away. We once upon a time had slavery, then we got rid of it, and that's the end of the story of the Black people. In Mexico, there is a long history of mestizaje, 
the mixing between people of all races. Tanya explains that that story of mestizaje can obscure the particular experience of Black people in Mexico and many parts of Latin America. In some respects, it's even a deeper-seated uh, set of racial pathologies because we have not been as open about talking about it. And if you keep something in the dark, festering, <laughs> then it doesn't have a chance to be addressed, let alone healed and resolved. The first time I heard the leaked tapes, I felt deeply embarrassed. It was like hearing a family member make an off-the-cuff racist remark in front of a friend who's meeting them for the first time. My family's from Argentina, and growing up, I heard a lot of phrases that now I understand to be rooted in racist and prejudiced thinking. I would visit Buenos Aires and hear people referring to all Asians as chinos, regardless of their country of origin. Until two years ago, I would use the word quilombo to refer to a mess. Until I learned that quilombo was the name of hideouts for escaped enslaved Africans in Latin America. And my family would call my white mom, who has a darker complexion than all of her siblings, La Negrita. Here's Tania Hernandez again. So the idea of why the most anti-Black stuff happens in Spanish on the audio tapes is actually not so surprising to me because that's how we learned it at home, right? Meaning these codes of anti-Blackness are very much part of how we both heard and were taught to speak about Blackness. When in an English-speaking operating world, to say that very same thing gets coded as racist. Whereas when we say it in Spanish, oh, that's just about being Latino. Oh, that's just about that's how we talk in the family. However, I don't think that we can then say it's totally off the table for us to examine the language uh, usage when we think through how, why is Blackness something that needs to be remarked on. I brought this up to Nuri, this idea that more Latinos should reflect on how and why we use certain racialized terms like negrito, which is how Nuri referred to Mike Bonin's son. There are a lot of ways that we talk in Latin America that we don't think about why we use those words. And I'm wondering in the year since this all happened, if like you've had thoughts about that. Of course, yeah. I think in Spanish and then I speak in English. And so, so many of my vocabulary comes from me being an English learner. And I think for me, those words are not meant to hurt anybody or to sound racist at all. I think it's just words that I grew up with. So it sounds like, you know, she really didn't want to engage on the topic deeply with you. You spent, what, like six hours interviewing her and you asked her repeatedly about anti-Blackness in the Latino community. And it seems like she just wouldn't go there. It was a very intense experience, and I think for me, it's been really interesting seeing people's reactions since the piece has come out. And I've spoken to some people in the Latino community who've told me, like, oh, I think Nuri has been misinterpreted, and she's caught hell for, like, the words that we say in the community. And even to this one person I was speaking to, I was like, okay, but do you not think there's an anti-Blackness problem in the Latino community? And she was like, oh, well, you know, yes. And I did think it was interesting that you brought up, like, the history of, like, colonialism in Latin America and, like, slavery in Latin America. And in my head, I'm like, this is, like, kind of who I was making this podcast for. Like, I'm really hoping that there is a group of people who listen to this 
this and is going to think twice um, before using certain words and understand how it is rooted in a deeper, difficult history. Um, Because, you know, I think Nuri and I think everyone deserves an opportunity to learn and to grow and to evolve. And I think that, like, the most we can do in this world is accept where we've made mistakes and then learn from them. And so for me, it it just felt like a really personal story and that I felt like there was like a level of familiarity with the way that they were talking. And I felt very much that I was speaking to my community. But I can tell that the story is making a lot of people, especially in the Latino community, think differently. What kind of feedback have you gotten from Black listeners, people in the Black community who were so hurt by Nuri's comments? I actually think that for a lot of Black listeners, it was really painful to just even hear the tapes again. For others, it was really another opportunity to think again about this feeling of how Los Angeles is a place where the Black community is shrinking at a really rapid pace. And I think that that's why those words were so hurtful. And I think why it was really important that we spoke about that experience of of being Black in Los Angeles. And um, for most of the Black people I spoke to, they're nowhere near ready to forgive or forget what was said on those tapes. Antonia, you spent a lot of time on this project. What was the most surprising thing for you about reporting this story? Well, I think it was just really interesting to hear not just from Nuri, but from so many city council members about the experience of being a city council member. Um, It was really cool to be doing something where it's about politics, but it's very much about this like human experience that all of them went through. And being a city council uh, member seems extremely difficult. We spoke to Nithya Raman, who she's been like called here in L.A., like the AOC of Los Angeles. And she was like, yeah, I cry myself to sleep regularly. And I was like, wow, it's just so powerful to hear a politician talk about the human impact of sort of what they're doing. It just allowed me to see a very human sort of behind the curtain scene of politicians. And it was just very interesting to hear about their own personal experiences. What do you think has changed in L.A. politics because of this scandal? The biggest thing is that the city council is much more progressive leaning right now than it was um, when this happened. There's been an influx of like much more left leaning uh, council members. I think there is now also a push to perhaps even add more council members to the city council because there's only 15 members, like each of them holds a ton of power. And it means that there's a lot of corruption here in the city, like apart from this story, like three different people got indicted in the last two years. And so I think people in general have a lot of dismay around um, government, city government officials. And so perhaps if they had more city government officials closer to what New York has or Chicago, New York has, I think, around 50, whereas, like I said, LA has 15, perhaps um, with a little less power would lead to less corruption, less problems. Um, But those are things that are now being discussed as um, potential reforms here in the city. Antonia Cerejido, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. That was LA's Antonia Cerejido, host of Imperfect Paradise, a podcast from LA's studios. You can hear the four-part series Nuri and the Secret Tapes wherever you get your podcasts. 
Imperfect Paradise was written and reported by Antonia Cerejido. Emily Guerin is the senior producer. Their senior editor is Meg Kramer. Catherine Mailhouse is the executive producer of the show. And Shana Naomi Krokmal is the vice president of podcasts. Minju Park was the producer, and their editorial team also includes Tony Marcano, Frank Stoltz, Megan Garvey, and Kristen Muller. Fact-checking by Caitlin Antonios. Mixing and theme music by E. Scott Kelly. The California Report magazine is a production of KQED in San Francisco. Our interim senior editor is Katrina Schwartz. Susie Racho is our producer-director. And our sound engineer is Brendan Willard. Olivia Zhao is our intern. And I'm Sasha Koka. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. Get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks.